many of you will know uh, parts of this, my story, but um, I, you know, I grew up in Germany um, as a kid, and I moved uh, here to the U.S., not here to Ohio, but to Pittsburgh in the U.S. in 2000, right, right around the summer of 2000, of July or August, you know, days before, like one day before school started. And so I came, uh, landed uh, at Pittsburgh Airport at about 4 p.m., and, and the next day I was, I was going to school. Uh, it was a pretty quick turnaround. And I remember when it happened, I was furious. And I was a 14-year-old kid, and I had been moved from all the things that I had known and loved, friends, school, all that all that kind of stuff, and so I, I, I kind of had a rebellious thing going on. I, I tried to thought about running away and all those kinds of different things, but it was a very traumatic kind of struggling time, and I, I hated coming here to the United States, um, mainly because I didn't know what Pittsburgh was. If you're not from America, really LA and New York are the two places you care about. Um, everything else is just kind of desolate wasteland uh, to those that don't live here, right? <laughs> they don't know that there's actually cool stuff elsewhere. Um, and so I, I didn't know where I was going, and I was just furious and hated it. And, and for the first probably couple of years, it was just, you know, I, I just kind of resented my, my, my parents for moving me and, and all those kinds of things. It was a long-term struggling kind of thing. Um, in, in 2016, totally unrelated to this, um, you might have heard of, there's a pastor named Andrew Brunson. Raise your hand if you know who that is. There's a couple people here. Uh, Andrew Brunson was an EPC pastor who was serving as a missionary in Turkey. And in 2016, he was arrested on trumped-up charges of terrorism and espionage um, by, by the Turkish government and held in prison. And he was in prison for a total of just about two years. Uh, and the first year of that, there was really no, like, well, what's my charge? Where's my trial? What's happening next? And so he spent a whole year just in prison while his wife, you know, Maureen, was just trying to figure out how to, how to see him and what his condition was. And when you think of prison in Turkey, you don't think of prison here, right? The conditions are abysmal. And it wasn't until two years later that he finally was released in, I think it was September, October of 2018. Uh, and if you want, you can go hear him speak and talk about that, that struggle. But the point is, while these are two very unrelated things, and while mine is a very minor thing, there are times in our lives where the Lord puts us through struggle, right? Sometimes very silly and minor, sometimes major, such as imprisonment or health issues or whatever. There's times when we have struggles that just seem to go on for a very long time, right? I bet all of you could, could point to some time in your life where you faced a struggle that wasn't just, you know, the Lord put me through this trial and then I... I came on the other side, you know, I lost a job and the next month I got a new one, you know, that kind of thing. But, but struggles that are long and ongoing, right? Some of you have been called to work in places where you are absolutely miserable. You hate it. Sorry, Shonda. You have the worst boss in the world. <laughs> Right? But you've been absolutely miserable. Maybe you've been in the same place for decades and you hate it. It is a paycheck. It is a means to an end. You could not wait to get out of there. And if it weren't for money and the need of it, you would be out so fast. But the Lord has put you in that place. And you keep thinking, why? Why can't I be somewhere that I love to get up in the morning and get passionate about the things that I do? Right? Some of you has family in your life that is rejected and despises you. You've been at odds with members of your family. Maybe some of you have children that don't talk to you or parents that don't talk to you. 
And you're wondering what this, this long-term just struggle of relationships and trying to figure it out. Some of you have chronic pains that you've been struggling with for decades that you cannot explain. You're just suffering through it. And no matter what you do, it doesn't seem to work. And the struggle just goes and goes and goes. And you just wonder, you lift your heads up to the Lord and you go, why? Those aren't, those aren't the, the hard, those are the hard things to wrestle with that we can't explain, right? Sometimes we experience suffering that we can't explain. But this long, just tedious struggle that we face is such a hard thing. Today I want to talk about struggle, and specifically long-term struggle, right? All of us face short-term stuff, but some of us are just dealing with things that, man, for the last 10, 20 years of our lives, the Lord has put this thorn in our side, and you just don't understand why, right? But, but I can look back at my silly struggle, and I can start to see that the Lord was at work in those things. If the Lord hadn't brought me to the States, he wouldn't have brought me to a church and the youth group that he brought me to. He wouldn't have had me come to know him at the time that he did in the place that he did in the way that he did. And he wouldn't have had me go to the school that I did, which wouldn't have had me connected to the, the church that I was connected to after I went out of college, which then wouldn't have led to me coming to Ohio, which wouldn't have me be standing here today. And so the Lord has something in mind when he's doing those things. But sometimes it's just really hard to see those things. We've been struggling for years with no end in sight. And the hard question sometimes is, what is he doing? Right? That's what today's account in Genesis is all about. This is the story of Joseph. And it's perhaps the longest story in all of Scripture. Unless you want to count the entire story of Jesus. <laughs> Which would be kind of a weird thing. But the Joseph narrative is one of the longest narratives in all of Scripture, and it's also one of the most beautiful and loved narratives. If you look at people in literature, one of the things they'll do is they'll look at the Joseph account in Genesis starting in 37 all the way through the end of the book, and they will hail it as some of the greatest literature writing, some of the greatest narrative ever put pen to paper. Right? It's so compelling, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a little something about the story, didn't he? Anybody here see Joseph in the... Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? This is, this is a famous narrative that even people outside of the realm of Christianity have, have heard to some degree, would understand a little bit about. And it's, it's a story about struggle that has a longevity to it. And so this morning, we're going to look at it. And it's so long, we're going to look at it over the span of two weeks in two parts. And so today is what I call struggle. And next week is what I call sovereignty. Right? And we're going to see how those two things play out. But I think the, the story is long on purpose, and it lets us sit in the pain of Joseph for a while. And so we're going to ride alongside of him and sit right in his pain with him as we go. And so this morning, I'm not going to have a stand because I'm going to read a couple different times, and so it just will become tedious. We don't, we don't want to feel too Catholic in this place. Right? So I'm going, to let you, I'm going to let you sit as we read these accounts together. But let's start with Genesis 37 verses 1 through 11, because it sets the scene for the life of Joseph, and it introduces us to the character for the first time. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. 
He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, there's a lot of beholds. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. It's the word of the Lord. So Jacob from last week is all grown up. right? Remember Jacob and Esau. He is now the patriarch of the Genesis narrative. And he has 12 sons. And the 12th of them, the youngest, is Joseph. And spoiler alert, Joseph is his favorite son. He says he's the one that he was given at an old age. He didn't think he was going to have any more, but then this, this Joseph comes around. And he is a good-looking dude, as we'll find out later. Right? Everything about Joseph is, is great. He's, kind of, he's, the, he's the, the favorite of the family. He gets special privileges and honors. And then it tells us that his father made him this coat. That's why we get the Technicolor dream coat. There's some liberties taken there, but it's straight from scriptural account. He gets this coat of many colors that he puts around him, and he's almost treated like this royal among the 12 other brothers. Now, when you have 11 brothers, all of which are older than you, who really don't like you already because you're the favorite, this next part is just a really bad idea. So Joseph has these dreams. The Lord gives him these dreams. And he goes first thing to the brothers and shares the two dreams. He goes, look, there were these sheaves. All of us had sheaves. And mine was standing straight. And it's weird, guys. Like, all of your sheaves? Like, they were bowing down to my sheaf. And you picture the 11 brothers going, "Uh uh-huh. Keep talking. What else? Right? Missing their knuckles, getting ready, right? And then he goes, well, I had, I had another dream, right? And, and the, the, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, they bowed down to me too. And now he tells his father that dream too. And now think about it. Sun, moon, 11 stars, father, mother, 11 brothers, right? Clearly, the dream is suggesting, and he is suggesting to the whole family now, not just the brothers, that, hey, it was weird. I had this dream. The Lord gave it to me. It was clear as night and day. All of you guys bowed down to me. And the brothers just are even more furious. And even the dad, whose favorite Joseph is, kind of says, hey, come on, Joseph. Enough. Like, your mom and I, we ain't bowing. 
You could dream all you want. <laughs> we're, we're not going to bow, right? As you can imagine, this does not go very well for Joseph. As it wouldn't. If you have older brothers, go home and tell them that you had dreams about them bowing down to you. And just see how far you get at Christmas or Thanksgiving without getting at least a noogie, right? Something's going to go down. So they, they, they are, are kind of plotting against him. They're hating on him. His brothers are now working out in the field. It's, it's, it's a couple days later. And, and Joseph, as, as, as stupid as he is, decides that he's going to walk up to them while they're in the field. And so this next part of Scripture is sibling logic at its absolute finest. We talked about sibling rivalry last week. If you want to see it just play itself out in the most beautiful way, this next part is for you. And if you have older siblings or you are an older sibling, you're really going to enjoy this text. I'm just going to let you know. Here's what happens next in 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Logically. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers listened to him. And then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Again, the word of the Lord. I love this. And if you're a brother who has annoying siblings, like this is like your dream, right? You've all thought about killing your siblings at one point or another. Well, they actually start to plot this out. They put hands on him, they strip him of his robe, and they are going to kill him. And Reuben, the logical one, says, well, don't, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit for a little bit. And after they throw him in a pit, they decide to eat lunch. I picture him in the pit like, guys, it's not funny anymore. It's been two hours. Not that they could tell time back then that easily. All right. And then this caravan of Ishmaelites comes by and, and they have an idea. They say, look, it, it doesn't do us any good if he's just in the pit and we shouldn't kill him. I mean, he, he's our, our brother after all. I mean, he is our own flesh. We can't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. That's the great idea. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. They sell him to the Ishmaelites and we're told that Joseph is brought to Egypt. And while this is kind of a humorous story in some ways, right? especially in a sibling rivalry or hatred kind of sense. And while we all who have siblings might want to vicariously live through the brothers and pretend that we could just sell our siblings into slavery, how many of you have thought about selling your siblings into slavery? Right? For Joseph, this isn't funny at all. 
For Joseph, this is the event that sets off a massive long-term struggle. And if you struggle with stuff in life today, I want you to just put yourself into the mind of Joseph and you'll start to understand pretty quickly that your struggles are pretty minuscule compared to the things that are happening to him at this time. So his life is going to radically change. And the thing also to note with Joseph is that it seems in the story that Joseph is kind of the bratty little brother, but we don't catch that anywhere. He's not sharing the dreams with his family in a way of trying to be the superior kid or be super cool or make his brothers hate him or anything like that. He he experiences these visions from the Lord. And he's just simply sharing what he sees God showing him, not understanding. At best, maybe he's a little naive as the youngest. But the thing to understand throughout the entire Joseph narrative is that, number one, he's, he's innocent in terms of instigating. He's not trying to, to cause trouble. But number two, Joseph is one of the people in Scripture, one of the very few people that is consistently, constantly faithful. In all the things that we're going to see Joseph encounter, there's a faithfulness and a steadfastness. We aren't given accounts in Scripture. He's a sinner just like the rest of us. But we aren't actually given an account in Scripture of him messing up in a significant way. Most of the things that Joseph experienced in their struggle are things that happened to him despite of him and his faithfulness. And if there's anyone who has the chance to stand up and say, God, what are you doing to me? Why am, I, why am I suffering for this? I come, I live for you every day. I'm doing the right things. I'm, I'm walking with you the way I should. Why does it just keep piling on? If there's anyone who gets to say that, aside from maybe Job, it's Joseph. Right? And so some of the things that happen to Joseph next. Those who bought him eventually sell him off when they get to Egypt. And so Joseph is carried on to Egypt and he's sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was an officer, uh, an official for for the Pharaoh, for the Egyptian army. And so he buys him as a a household slave. And he lives there and he works as a slave under Potiphar's house. And and as he's faithful and and good and and diligent in his work, he kind of takes whatever lot he's given and makes the best of it. Potiphar starts to take notice of the upstanding nature and character of Joseph. And he elevates him and he starts to rise through the ranks of Potiphar's household and the servants within it. Until eventually, he's to the point where he is overseeing the entire household of Potiphar. He's kind of the the chief officer, chief operating officer, and chief financial officer of Potiphar's household. He's managing his money. He's managing his, his people. He's managing his house. He's managing his comings and goings. He's the guy running the show. He's in charge. And he enjoys a relatively calm and decent life as a part of that. He's still a slave. We can't forget that, right? He's not free, but he's not being actively physically oppressed. He's not in any kind of bad situation. He has a fairly decent life. He has food in his stomach and a roof over his head, and he's living a life that is acceptable at the time, right? He's kind of worked his way up through his faithfulness. Well, then it becomes pretty evident what's going to happen next. His wife eventually, you know, Potiphar's wife, encounters Joseph. And remember what we talked about, Joseph's a good-looking dude. And so his wife starts to go after and to make some moves when it comes to Joseph. She starts to hit on him when Potiphar's not home. 
And Joseph reacts the way that we would want any good, upstanding Christian to react. There's one point where she throws herself at him and he literally runs out the house, right? We talk about like whenever we face temptation in life, we should flee or run from our temptation. Potiphar took that full-on literal. Like he was tempted and so he turned 180 and he just booked it out of the house, like clear out. I picture it like Forrest Gump, like the scene where he's at the football field and he hits the touchdown, but he just keeps running and running and running and running, like out the field, down the, down the road, right? Potiphar just books it out of the house. His wife, or sorry, Potiphar, Joseph books it out of the house. His wife, however, decides to be conniving about it. She, as he's booking it out, has a hold of his, his clothing, and she decides to scream and pretend that he threw himself at her. She tries to claim that Joseph assaulted her, and when she screamed, he ran off in fear, not fleeing from her advances. And obviously, who are you going to believe, the servant or your own wife, right? Chances are, most husbands, you're going to believe your wife. And so Joseph finds himself out of the favor of Potiphar and thrown into prison. And here's what's really just sad about the story of Joseph. It's the longevity of it. We actually have some historical timelines of when all this stuff kind of went down. And so while he's a faithful guy, from his vantage point, there's no plan here. God doesn't speak to him throughout his experience, say, look, you're going to suffer for a while and then be elevated up, and here's how this is going to go. He's just getting through life, trying to make the best of whatever turmoil and struggle is thrown his way. He doesn't understand why it's happening, and he doesn't understand when there's an end in sight. And here's our rough timeline. He sold into slavery on 1583 BC. And it's, he's in Potiphar's household from about three years on, so until about 1580 is when he's thrown into prison. And the next vantage point we get while he's in prison, the next thing that happens is that he encounters some of Pharaoh's people that are also thrown in prison. But we find out that happens around 1870. So that means that because of this Potiphar's wife fiasco, Joseph rots in prison for 10 years, meaninglessly, waiting to see what happens next. He doesn't know how long he's going to be there. He's, there's no end in sight. It's not a trial or anything like that. He's just kind of thrown there. Can you imagine purposelessly being in prison for 10 years? You could be out tomorrow. You could be out in 40 years. You have no idea. You're just sitting there. 10 long years. And he remains faithful. For 10 long years. That's a long struggle to face. Especially if you don't know the purpose or reason. right? If the Lord had come to him and said, you are going to be in prison for 10 years for my sake, but there is a thing to be accomplished. right? You have something to kind of set your mind and, and a hope on. But Joseph doesn't have that hope. He knows his God and he knows he's good, but he's not told anything. And he just rots the days away. And somehow holds on to faith over the long haul. So now, next week we're going to see how Joseph ends up catching the eye of Pharaoh. And we'll see this progression all the way to the day that he re-encounters his brothers and his, his family again. But for today, I just want us to sit in, in, the, in the sorrow of Joseph for a little bit. right? As Christians, this is such an important lesson for us to absorb. In the Christian life, there's a lot of times struggle. And a lot of that struggle can last for a very, very long time. 
And oftentimes, it makes no sense to us. We don't see the purpose in our struggle. And now, I don't say this to discourage anyone that's going through hard times. Right? I don't want you to sit here and go, yeah, that's me. That's the struggle. Right? We know that God wins. We know that we are going to have victory in the end. And we know what our fate is. But oftentimes, a lot of people forsake God in the struggle. Especially when it's for the long haul. It's the number one reason that Christians lay down their faith. It's less about the major traumatic events of life. It's more about the slow struggle when they start to doubt God's purposes and God's goodness. Maybe that's been you throughout your life at various points. We have a poor theology of struggle. Not the worst of the worst stuff, but the slow-burning things that just linger and last. But here's the thing. God continuously promises us that struggle is a part of the Christian life. Here's 2 Timothy 4, 5. As for you, Paul encourages Timothy, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. See, Paul reminds Timothy to always endure suffering, to keep a sober mind, which means to keep an understanding of God's goodness and his truth and his plan, even when you can't see it, and to just do the hard work of ministry. And two verses later is when we get that passage of, I've run the race, I've kept the faith, right? Paul's reflecting on his own journey and the amount of times that he went through endless seeming struggle that wasn't going to come to a conclusion only to look back on his whole life and say, look, all I can tell you, Timothy, in your young, new career as, as, as a pastor is, man, life's just full of struggle. And it's long and it's tedious and sometimes it doesn't seem to end. But just, just keep going. Keep going pressing on. Jesus himself tells us this. This is John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, right? Jesus himself reminds the disciples that tribulation in this world is just an expected thing and that peace comes in him. And it might not come for years, but it will Come. And therein lies the key. When we have tribulation, our hope comes from trusting that God is on the move for us. We trust even if we can't see it, even if we don't understand it, because Scripture affirms that that's the truth. This isn't a theological jargon or, or Bible study type of thing. We look at this theologically and we look at the story of Joseph and we say, yeah, well, yes, God is present and we can see it. But this is real stuff for us. Right? This isn't theoretical. This isn't something we pick up in a Bible study in some kind of academic way. I've been here in this church now long enough that I've sat with quite a few of you guys. I've sat over coffee. I've sat in my office. I've sat in your homes. I've sat at your bedside. I know the struggle that is part and represented within the body of this church, Stowe Presbyterian. And it is very real. Many of you, many of you are dealing with really horrible, long-term struggle that you cannot explain. You know who you are. Some of you for decades with no end in sight. Right? 
And sometimes I can see God working in it as, a, as an outside person, like while you're in the thick of it. But more often than not, the pain that is in this congregation makes no earthly logical sense. It's really hard to see what God could possibly be up to. Right? And for those of you who feel like I'm, I'm preaching to you, you know, know that God loves you. Know that we love you. Right? Know that God is faithful and know that we as a church are here for you. We don't know what God is doing or why this stuff is happening to you. But the hardest part of faith is to accept that when we're left in the dark as to God's plan, he is up to something. Right? Next week, we're going to look at that something. We're going to resolve this Joseph story. But for today, let's just sit in it for a bit. Let's feel the weight of, of the struggle that is a part of the everyday life of being a follower of Christ. And just remind ourselves that God is good. Even when we can't see it. Especially when we can't see it. Right? Next week we're going to see exactly how God likes to work over the long haul. One of the hardest things about life as a Christian is understanding that our timeline is this. And God's timeline is this. It's really infinite, but my hands don't stretch that far, right? He doesn't operate with our understanding of time. Your life of 80, 90, 100 years is a blip on his radar, and he will do things within that time to set stuff up for decades from now. You might not even be around, but his working and his plan and his activity and his holiness and his ushering into his kingdom is so much bigger than you and I, and we're going to take a look and dive deep into the sense that God's timing brings to the kingdom of this world that he's ushering in slowly. Right? And hopefully, hopefully, we'll learn to be encouraged to trust his goodness and his grace in all the things that we face. Let's pray. God, we love you. Lord, we just want to just especially lift up those people in our midst who are just suffering long-term right now. Many of them we know. Some we don't. We pray that there would be an encouragement, that your spirit would, would just hover over their household and give them peace tonight. We pray that you would make their struggles known to us as the body of Christ so that we can be a help. And we pray that you would equip us through your spirit to be the community of faith that, that those folks need us to be. We don't know why we struggle and suffer. All we know is that you did too in this world. And that you overcame so that one day we could overcome. So we ask you for your supernatural peace that passes all understanding. And Lord, we do ask for an end to those struggles. We know your plan. We love you. And we trust you. But selfishly, we just want it to end. So we ask for healing. We ask for restoration. We ask for for people to have purpose in life that they can understand. We ask for careers that bring fulfillment and, and, and an answer to a calling and a way to work out the, the giftedness and the passion that you've given us. We pray that we might find resolution in this life somehow, that your purposes would be revealed to us. We pray that we might understand, God, that we might understand what you're doing. But when we don't, we ask for faith, for a supernatural faith and trust that we can't muster on our own. That we might know and understand and seek your goodness. Be with us this week. Be with those of us who are suffering. 
Put your arm around them. Send them love. Send them care. Send us as you see fit. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, Amen.